The PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. What if we could block a protein to stop runaway cell division? Dana-Farber Cancer Institute laid the foundation for CDK4-6 inhibitors, drugs designed to treat many advanced breast cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Major funding for this podcast has been provided by Public Welfare Foundation and the Pulitzer Center. Hey, y'all, this is episode two of a five-part series. So if you didn't start from the beginning, trust me, it'll make a lot more sense if you stop right here and go back to episode one. I just remember telling them that they was making a mistake. They was making a mistake. And and I I thought that they were going to figure this out when we get downtown. 23 years later, we still haven't quite figured it out. Or they haven't, at In episode one, we introduced you to Ricky Kidd, the Kansas City man who in 1997 was found guilty of double homicide and then sentenced to life without parole. And to this day, he maintains he's innocent of that crime. If Ricky Lamont Kidd is in the case of real innocence, then does such exist? Ricky Kidd's case represents a fundamental problem with our justice system, that public defenders just have too many cases and not enough time to give all their cases the treatment that they need. So poor defendants like Ricky suffer. This notion that somebody is going to get charged properly and then represent it, if he's poor or innocent, and represent it properly, that's a false notion. This idea Ricky's talking about, the right to a lawyer for people who can't afford to pay for one, how did we get that right in the first place? To understand that, we need to go back to 1963, when a poor man in Florida demanded a lawyer from the highest court in the country and won that fight. How we built a public defender system and how we broke it. Do they have a nickname for public defenders? Oh, yeah. Yeah, they call them uh, public pretenders. These are my docket cases, probation. I have 119 open cases. 131 open cases. Hey, here's your 200 cases. You have court in 20 minutes. It's across the street. Go. I feel the stress of 150 souls on my back. And you know that some of them are slipping through the cracks. Hello, this is a free call from... Ricky. I 100% believe that I'm in prison today because of the Missouri Public Defender System. This is Broken Justice, a show from the PBS NewsHour about the public defender system in Missouri and what it tells us about justice in America. I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Frank Carlson. For more than 40 years, the PBS NewsHour has provided solid, reliable reporting that has made it one of the most trusted news programs on television. From news headlines to analysis, millions of people rely on the context, independence, and balance the NewsHour offers. Watch, read, follow the NewsHour on broadcast and online every night.
Frank, this right to a free council for poor people, we haven't had it forever. Where does it come from? Well, it all starts with the Sixth Amendment to the Constitution. That's the one that deals with trials. It says, in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury. And then I'm going to skip ahead to the end because this is the part we care about. And to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. That sounds like you get the right to a lawyer no matter what, whether you can afford one or not. Yeah, it sounds like that. But for a while, actually, the Supreme Court didn't see it that way. And it wasn't the law of the land. See, for most of our history, the Sixth Amendment didn't mean you were entitled to a lawyer. It meant the court couldn't deny you one. And so if you couldn't afford a lawyer, tough luck. But at least in state courts, where the vast majority of cases take place, that all changed in the early 1960s. I don't have any money. When a man named Clarence Earl Gideon asked for a lawyer. I want you to appoint somebody that'll represent me. Here he is played by Henry Fonda in a 1980 made-for-TV movie called Gideon's Trumpet. That definitely sounds like something a substitute teacher would have showed me in middle school. (laughs) It really does. But Gideon's story is really important. Come come close up, Mr. Gideon. I, I can't understand you. I said I want you to appoint a lawyer to represent me in this trial. See, what Gideon did right there, that simple act of asking for a lawyer, it would forever change our legal system, making him a hero to civil rights advocates, historians, and legal scholars across the country. But before all that, Gideon was a poor white man from Missouri. All roads lead back to Missouri, right? Right, they do. And when Gideon was a teenager, he ran away from home. He ended up living as a poor drifter for most of his life, arrested several times for petty crimes. I gotta take you in in connection with this pool room thing. And then in 1961, when Gideon was 50, he got arrested for robbing a pool hall in Panama City, Florida. You didn't bust in there and help yourself to the silver and the jig box and the cigarette machine? No, sir. Not me, I don't know what you're talking about. How do we get from the pool hall to the Supreme Court? Well, first he appeared before a local judge. He said to the judge very clearly that he wanted an attorney, and the judge said, well, sorry. That's Karen Hoopert, a journalist in Baltimore who wrote a book about the state of public defense in America. It's called Chasing Gideon. Gideon said, but I'm entitled to an attorney. It's my right. And the judge said, no, actually, you're not. So Gideon was forced to represent himself. He lost his case not surprisingly, and was sentenced to five years in jail, in prison. While doing that time, Gideon wrote a note on prison stationery to the Florida Supreme Court, trying to appeal his case. I asked Karen to read part of that letter. It makes no difference how old I am or what color I am or what church I belong to, if any. The question is, I did not get a fair trial. The question is very simple. I requested the court to appoint me an attorney, and the court refused. Gideon wasn't the first poor person to ask for a lawyer and to have been told no. And so, of course, he lost his appeal. But he didn't stop there. He appealed all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. And his timing was good. It was the 1960s, and the country was changing. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. marched on Washington for civil rights. The women's movement was also in full swing. And of course, it's equal, equal rights. Equal rights to have a job, to have respect, to not be viewed as a piece of meat. 
I think that all of that was part of a shifting cultural conversation about what justice will look like in the United States. At the time, the Supreme Court was led by Earl Warren, the famous liberal, and the court agreed to hear Gideon's case. But wait, the whole case was about how Gideon couldn't afford a lawyer. So who represented him? Well, the court appointed a lawyer named Abe Fortas to represent Gideon, and he was a legal heavyweight. And pretty quickly, he got to the point. This is audio of him arguing before the U.S. Supreme Court. Indeed, I believe that the right way to look at this is that a court, a criminal court, is not properly constituted under our adversary system of law unless there is a judge and unless there is a counsel for the prosecution and unless there is a counsel for the defense. He is really, in that moment, getting at the crux of the argument, which is that our system, our legal system, is designed as an adversarial system. And that means that by arguing, two sides equally matched will get at the truth. So that means that the defendant absolutely must have an attorney to represent him or her. Okay, so that is the argument being made by Gideon's lawyer, but how did the court rule? They agreed. The justices unanimously ruled in Gideon's favor, laying down the principle that anyone accused of a felony in state court deserved the right to counsel. Well, I felt great. Here's Gideon himself remembering that decision in a 1964 CBS documentary about his case. As I was listening for the decision on the radio, when it came on, most of the prison population heard it. You could hear them holler for 10 miles, I suppose, from there. So Gideon won this case. That seems like a really big deal for our legal system. It was huge. But he still had to answer for the original crime. And so he was retried in his original case in Florida before the exact same judge. Here's that made-for-TV movie again. And your verdict to the bailiff. And with the help of a lawyer. Clarence Earl Gideon, the jury finds you not guilty. He won. And in the process, he changed the justice system for millions of Americans by ensuring everyone the right to a lawyer, even if they couldn't afford one. And the whole course of American legal history has been changed. So Gideon won his case. The whole legal system's been changed. Why are there still so many problems with the system? Unfortunately, the court failed to lay out any roadmap for states to figure out how to provide this right to counsel. That's Jason Williamson, who works for the American Civil Liberties Union. He says that while the Gideon decision was huge, the court didn't tell states how to implement this new mandate or how to pay for it. And to be fair, that wasn't their job. So if it wasn't their job, whose job was it? Well, the court's job was to rule on whether poor people had the right to a lawyer. It wasn't to figure out how they'd get one. That problem now fell to the states. And with no standards, they were left with a lot of really different ways to meet this new obligation. Was the answer to hire a private lawyer who occasionally took cases assigned by the court? Was it to hire a law firm that handled all these cases for a flat fee? Was it to create a state office that only did this kind of work? Okay, okay, so so no matter how poor you are, you're supposed to get a lawyer in court, but no one can agree on how that's supposed to happen? Exactly. And this newfangled thing, public defense, it had to compete with spending on things like roads and schools and healthcare and police and jails and prisons. 
and taking away money from those things to provide lawyers to poor people accused of crimes, it was a really tough sell and still is. Here's Jason Williamson again. We're talking about people who are probably the most vulnerable and most despised in our country. Uh, Doing those folks any sort of favor is not going to be at the top of anybody's list. As these different systems were being developed across the country, something else was happening. America's public enemy number one in the United States is drug abuse. In 1971, President Richard Nixon declared a war on drugs. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. There was an expansion of drug law enforcement, particularly in communities of color and, and poor communities, coupled with an exponential increase in the sentences that people were receiving for those drug convictions. So in the 1970s and 80s, more people were getting arrested for drug crimes. And at the same time, the rate of violent crime was also going up. In 10 years, the homicide toll increased five and a half times. By the early 1990s, violent crime was more than four and a half times higher than it had been back in 1963, when Gideon's case was decided. And politicians responded by locking up more people for longer and longer sentences, a disproportionate number of them people of color. Let us go forward, Democrats, Republicans, and Independents. Let us roll up our sleeves to roll back this awful tide of violence and reduce crime in our country. Okay, so Gideon gets poor people the right to a lawyer. And then there's this war on drugs and the rise in violent crime, more people entering the system, a lot more people who might need help from a public defender, right? Right, and that created this huge mismatch. The number of lawyers wasn't increasing along with the number of people who needed help. So with increasing caseloads, public defenders began to really struggle in states across the country. And Missouri was no different. And that is the system that Ricky Kidd stepped into in 1996. After the break, what happened when Ricky was charged with murder and asked for a public defender? For the best in arts and culture, check out the NewsHour's Canvas website at artscanvas.org. There you can engage with high-quality art and elevate the work of recognized and up-and-coming artists. It's a space where you, the public, can interact and share ideas for arts and cultural content. Canvas. Online, on Twitter, and on Facebook. On the morning of February 6th, 1996, in Kansas City, Missouri, a four-year-old girl picked up a phone and dialed 911. She told the dispatcher, somebody killed my daddy. Rescue workers try to save George Bryant's life just moments after he's gunned down at his own home in southeast Kansas City. When police arrived at her home, they found George Bryant lying in the snow outside of his house. He had multiple gunshot wounds and was rushed to a nearby hospital, but he died. Neighbors described the 33-year-old victim as a family man who kept to himself. The garage door was open, and with his gun drawn, a police officer entered to find that little girl still talking to the 911 dispatcher. Officers took the little girl to their patrol car, where she began to cry for her daddy, that man lying in the snow. Police would later find another unidentified man shot inside the house. 
Downstairs, they found Oscar Bridges, a middle-aged man who had duct tape over his mouth and binding his feet and ankles. He'd been executed with two shots to his head. By the afternoon, the four-year-old girl's house was a crime scene. Investigators tell us the men did not shoot each other. They're looking for one or more suspects. Witnesses describe the suspects as three black men wearing black clothing, seen driving off in a white four-door car. In 1996, I was a good kid. I just wanted money. And uh, I probably should have been in business somewhere, legitimately in college somewhere. At the time, Ricky Kidd, the man we began this episode with, was 21 years old and living in Kansas City. He'd grown up in a tough environment. He says his mother struggled with drug addiction, and when he was 12, she abandoned the family. He was left alone. He dropped out of high school and started selling marijuana and cocaine. I saw a quick way to make a quick buck, and my young mind processed it as being harmless. But things were also looking up for Ricky. He had a new girlfriend, a young woman named Monica Gray, and she came from a stable family. Ricky was spending more and more time with them, and he and Monica had moved in together. But Ricky was still selling drugs, unbeknownst to Monica, and that life would eventually catch up with him. In February 1996, the same month of the murders, he was arrested for drug trafficking. He pleaded guilty and got probation. So I thought this was a turning point for me. Maybe I needed that. Maybe I needed to slap on the wrist. A few months later in May of 1996, Ricky went downtown to meet with his probation officer. And while they were talking, two police officers showed up and arrested Ricky. They'd acted on an anonymous tip and two eyewitness identifications. And they charged Ricky and another man with the murders of George Bryant and Oscar Bridges. I was shocked. I just remember telling them that they was making a mistake. They was making a mistake. Ricky couldn't afford a private attorney, so he applied for a public defender and was assigned one named Teresa Anderson. Talk about the workload, the caseload during that time. It was, I mean, heavy, obviously. That's Teresa Anderson. When she was assigned Ricky's case, she was 31 years old and had been working as a public defender in Kansas City for three years. It was her first job out of law school, and pretty quickly, she was overwhelmed. It was at a time when there was some realization um, that we were, you know, at a minimum, we're really working as much as we possibly could under a great deal of stress, you know, but we needed help. In fact, a report came out in 1993, around the time Teresa started in the Kansas City office, and it warned that Missouri's public defender system was overloaded, and that clients could suffer as a result. Okay, so you have Teresa Anderson, who's just three years out of law school, and she's dealing with a murder case on top of a bunch of other cases, and she's totally feeling overwhelmed. And then you've got Ricky Kidd, who's charged with a double homicide and basically counting on her to get him out. Exactly. And Ricky says that because he didn't commit this crime, he wasn't really worried. I knew that there was elements of evidence and various witness statements that could prove my innocence and thought that my attorney appointed by the public defender system would be equipped to be able to deal with that and flush out that truth. One of the things Ricky's talking about is that he and his girlfriend Monica were together on the day of the murders. They said they had been all over town together, including a stop at the sheriff's office. 
Wait, the sheriff's office? It seems like a visit to a government office would be a really good alibi for Ricky. Yeah, it's a pretty good alibi. But even beyond that, Ricky also says he knew who actually committed the murders. We're going to tell you more about that in the next episode. All right. So you would think that Ricky could just tell all of this to Teresa, his public defender, and then be good to go. Right. He figured she'd explain it to the prosecutor and the detectives. They'd go investigate and see that it couldn't have been Ricky who committed these murders. And they'd set him free. But Teresa knew it wasn't that easy. Ricky's view was, but I'm innocent and the system will work and I'll get out. And, you know, and it's just, you know, my experience had not been that. Ricky was so convinced that the police had simply made a mistake that he told one of the detectives that he knew who the actual killers were. But the prosecutor didn't believe Ricky, and now he'd admitted to knowing more than he'd first let on. Teresa was frustrated that Ricky had gone behind her back. And we know that because we have some of Teresa's letters to Ricky from that time. A few weeks after his arrest, she sent him this one. It says, I cannot emphasize how important my advice is at the moment. I know that you are in the jail and you don't want to be there. However, my job is to keep you from going to prison for the rest of your life, and that is what I intend to do. And then she ended it with this. You know I am in trial this week. That man's case is just as important as yours, and you will have to just let me finish this trial before I can come see you. Like so many other public defenders, Teresa had a lot of other cases to deal with at the time. I mean, it's almost like... Uh, doctor during the Vietnam War or something. You know, you're just kind of like, well, okay, you might lose the leg, but we're going to save the other one. You know, I mean... Um, you're saying so, triage. Yeah, you're triage. So, so hang tight. We'll figure out what we can do. In those early stages, Teresa says she wondered whether they could cut a deal with the prosecution, get Ricky to plead guilty to a lesser charge to reduce his potential prison time. You know, that's kind of your first thought is, okay, where are we at? What's the evidence? Can they prove it? Can we work something out so you only spend 10 years of your life in prison versus every single day until you're dead? Ricky did not like that idea. I was hot. I was livid. I was like, innocent man doesn't take a plea. No, I don't want to plea. I want it to be over. I wanted my trial. I wanted my day in court. Weeks passed. Ricky kept calling and writing Teresa, begging her to spend more time on his case. And he says he pointed to a number of things he thought she could do, like talk to his alibi witnesses, or check for evidence like video surveillance that could back up his story. But after a couple of months in jail and seemingly no movement on his case, it was dawning on Ricky that maybe his public defender didn't have the time or resources to represent him properly. And so my family would contact her, too. My sister, Monica, hey, why are you not working with him or helping him on his case? And um, she even got mad about that. Like, don't have your family to keep calling me, bugging me. I'll talk to one person, maybe one time, maybe here and there, but basically lay off my back. And that's not just Ricky's memory. We have Teresa's letter to him from August 1996, when she wrote, You should be on notice that I will take one phone call from you or Monica per week if I am available. I will talk to your mother when she calls if I am available. And then she ends it with this. If you cannot live with these terms, I suggest you hire another lawyer. So it clearly sounds like Teresa's frustrated, and we know how overwhelmed someone in her position would be. At the same time, Ricky has to be frustrated, right? Because this is the one person who's there to defend him. Yeah, I mean, for better or for worse, they were stuck with each other. Then in August, six months after the murders, 
three months after being locked up, Ricky finally received the evidence the state had against him. There were two eyewitnesses who said they could put Ricky at the scene, but there was no physical evidence tying him to the crime. He felt even more confident there was no case, if only Teresa would get on it. But he was starting to get concerned that she never would. I don't think we did much work when it came to uh, strategy. I don't think she had the uh, resources and the time to follow up on things that I was screaming um, that needed to be followed up on. In September, he asked the judge to have Teresa dismissed as his lawyer. He wrote in this official letter to the court that he'd only talked to her three times in four months, and he felt that she hadn't helped him in any way. But the judge denied Ricky's request that same day. When his trial finally came in March of 1997, more than a year after the murders, Ricky was worried, but he still hoped that his innocence would be enough to walk free. I'm going to go to trial and get found not guilty because I didn't do it. They're going to see it, right? Teresa presented an alibi defense, meaning her story was that Ricky couldn't have committed the murders because he was somewhere else that day. But Ricky had also told Teresa he knew who committed the murders. Right, but Teresa didn't think she had enough evidence to introduce that theory, so it stayed out of court. And to prove her alibi case, Teresa called on seven witnesses to confirm Ricky's story, which they did. There's no audio available from this trial, so what you're about to hear are reenactments from the court transcripts. Everybody knows your name, and I'll have you say it for the record. Uh, Please tell me your name. Ricky Kidd. Ricky also took the stand. What time did you get up that morning? Uh, I believe around 9 o'clock. And told the same story he had since his arrest, about being with Monica that day and visiting the sheriff's department. After you left McDonald's, where were you headed? To the sheriff's department. Why were you going to the sheriff's department? To get a gun permit. Okay, let's talk a little bit about that. But the state found a way to poke holes in Ricky's story and his witnesses' accounts. Here's a prosecutor cross-examining one of the witnesses about how he could remember events from more than a year earlier. You can't remember what you did on the 4th of February, can you? No, I don't specifically. How about the 8th of February? Not even that. It had been a year since the murders, and so the prosecutors argued that Ricky's witnesses were telling the truth, just the truth about a different day. And really, a year later, how sure could the witnesses be about which day it was? And then to prove Ricky had done it, the state called on two eyewitnesses who put Ricky at the scene. The first was the daughter of one of the victims, the four-year-old girl who'd called 911. But in court, she couldn't point Ricky out as one of the killers. So that sounds like it is not good for the prosecution's case. No, not at all. But then the other eyewitness, a neighbor of the victim's, he told the jury that he was certain he saw Ricky Kidd shoot George Bryant. Mr. Harris, sitting here today, how positive are you that Mr. Kidd, Ricky Kidd, was the person that you saw 2001. Let me finish my question. Walk out of the garage with a gun and shoot George Bryant on February 6, 1996. 2001% show. Ricky's trial lasted more than a week. The jury deliberated for just one hour and then convicted Ricky and another man of two counts of first-degree murder and two counts of armed criminal action. The verdict was shocking to me. I mean, it was, you know, emotionally hard. So I can totally see where he walked away going, oh my God, I cannot believe this just happened to me. The judge sentenced each of them to four back-to-back life terms, no possibility of parole. Those are some dark times for me. 
I knew that Monica needed me. I knew that my uh, newborn baby needed me, um, but they were not going to get the chance to have me. And um, it was so devastating. I was in so much distress, tears. My whole world was turned upside down. Ricky had believed in the promise that someone who couldn't afford an attorney would have one to represent him. And technically, he had a lawyer. But now, he was going to spend the rest of his life in prison. A warm body with a pulse and a law license is not enough. In the next episode, we go through the key failures of Ricky's investigation and trial. I would bet that an investigator that knew what they were doing could have spent 20 hours, maybe 30 hours, on that case and come up with some reasonable doubt. And how the outcome could have been different. It's, it's been rough. It's been rough. I ended up in life without possibility to parole. Something I didn't even do. That's on the next episode of Broken Justice. Broken Justice is hosted by me, Amna Nawaz, reported by Frank Carlson and produced by Vika Aronson, editing by Erica R. Hendry and Emily Carpo, engineering by Tom Satterfield, production assistance from Chris Ford, fact-checking by Maya Lene Bura, Amber Partita, and Harry Zahn. Taka Yasuzawa and Alex Segura composed our theme music. Additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. The actors in this episode were Courtney Vanopel, J.C. Howard, Brian Wood, Bill Barber, Gretchen Frazee, and John Hyatter. Thanks to the folks at Gideon Productions for letting us use audio from their film, Gideon's Trumpet. And thanks also to Channel 41, KSHB in Kansas City for sharing their 1996 report on the murders of George Bryant and Oscar Bridges. Sarah Just is our executive producer. Let us know what you think of the show and send your questions to podcasts at newshour.org. Tweet us at NewsHour and leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. Check out show extras, including a look at Ricky and Teresa's letters to each other leading up to the trial on our website. That's at pbs.org slash newshour slash podcasts.